You're listening to Let's Talk Creation with Todd Wood and Paul Garner, the creation show where we learn, grow, and worship. Well, welcome back to another episode of Let's Talk Creation with Todd and Paul. I am Todd Wood. And I'm Paul Garner. And look, we're in the car together, driving along, and this episode is all about uh, the Great Smoky Mountain National Park. We're headed there right now, and we're going to do some hiking and some looking at some geology. Paul, you've been there before, right? I have, yeah. I, I was not very well when I was here last time. <laughs> yeah. um, I picked up some kind of bug, I think, on the plane, and I was feeling pretty ropey, so I hope I'm going to enjoy it a bit more this yeah, time. Yeah, I, I think you will. Yeah, let's hope so. So, yeah, so we're headed off there right now, and um, we're going to use this opportunity to talk a little bit about um, uh, plate tectonics yeah. and what that means for the creation model and our understanding of the flood. So this will be a great time, I think, and I'm, I'm looking forward to it. This is going to be a lot of fun. So yeah. uh, we'll see you in the park. The park was established by an act of Congress in 1934, and in 1983 it was declared a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It encompasses more than a half a million acres in both North Carolina and Tennessee, and it's the most visited national park in the United States, with 14.1 million visitors in 2021. That averages out to more than 38,000 people every day. So if you want to go to popular places like Cades Cove, get there early. Back when the state of Tennessee deeded the main road through the park to the National Park Service, they stipulated that there was to be no toll charged for those roads. And still to this day, there are no entrance fees to the park. This year, though, they've instituted a small parking fee if you're planning to spend some time there. Just driving through, though, is still free. Well, all right. Before we get going into the park, I thought it would be a good idea for us to sort of, I don't know, review some things about the park and maybe talk about regional geology, something like that. Yep. And since this is a lesson on plate tectonics, it would be good to, I don't know, introduce plate tectonics. Sure. Yeah. Good. So, let me get started with this. This is the park itself. This mm -hmm. is a map of the park. Basic layout here, you've got this main road that runs through the mountains there. And then we have uh, this road here that leads out to this place called Cades Cove. We're going to be looking at that. Yeah. And you can see, as we look at this map, it's mostly mountain, right? There's, yeah. There's sure. not there's not much else no. to it other than the mountains. So I've got a better map. Okay. I got another map anyway. Ta-da! Big map. All right. <laughs> All right. So here's the regional geology. So this is the USGS um, topo map. Here's Chattanooga down here. Yeah. And we've got uh, Dayton, where I live, and then we've got Knoxville over there. The Smokies mm -hmm. would be off the map over here. So we've, we've got this area here, but it's clearly got these linear features, these ridges yes. and valleys running yes. through here. All right, then to the west of this, this ridge and valley, you have this raised area, mm. which is very prominent. Um, that's the Cumberland Plateau. I've noticed that the Cumberland Plateau, the strata are kind of layered flat. Right. Flattish, right? Yeah. So that it looks like it looks like what you would sort of expect from yeah. I guess geological layering. There's not tilting, there's not folding, it's just okay. sort of flat. Okay, Paul, so we're using this episode as an opportunity to learn a little bit about plate tectonics. Yeah. Most people probably know plate tectonics from the idea of continental drift. Mm. So, can you give me a five-minute summary of the idea <laughs> of plate tectonics, other yeah. than just continental drift? Uh, yeah. Well, let's get let's go back to the beginning. So, so as early as the 16th century, people begin to notice that the coastlines of the continents match up. Right, so there, there's a guy, for example, in 1596. He's a cartographer called Abraham Ortelius, and he notices that the coastline of the Americas seems to match the coastline of Africa and Europe. 
And so he speculates that maybe those continents were once together and got ripped apart by earthquakes and floods, is his idea. And over the next three centuries or so, various people make similar speculations. Antonio Snyder Pellegrini is another guy. He's in 1858. So this is just before Darwin. Yeah. Okay, just before yeah. Origin of Species. Right. And again, you know, he notices how the continents match up and so on. And he, in fact, he speculates that the continents tore apart during Noah's flood, which is really interesting. Hmm, sounds familiar. Yeah. <laughs> sounds familiar. But the problem with all of these speculations was that nobody had an adequate mechanism. Nobody could really explain exactly how the continents had moved apart. So in the 19th century, people were doing studies of the ocean floor, bathymetric surveys. And one of the things they discovered is that there is a mountain range that runs along the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. Okay. And so in 1912, there's a guy called Alfred Wegener, and he's the guy who is most associated with this idea of continental drift. He speculated that the continents had moved apart and that this mountain range running down the middle of the Atlantic Ocean was the place where those plates were separating. But virtually everybody in the earth science community rejected Wagner's ideas. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> okay, because again, there was there still no really adequate mechanism to explain how that could have happened. So then we have some other things that happen. Um, we have seismic data coming in in the 20th century that begins to reveal that the Earth has a layered structure. Okay, so there's a core, okay. there's a mantle, mm -hmm. and then there's a crust or a lithosphere. All right. And one of the other things is that we have the discovery in 1896 of radioactivity. And people begin to put this together and think, well, maybe the heat generated by radioactive decay in the Earth might produce some kind of convection system in the Earth's mantle. Okay. 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 All right. So there is this idea that, of mantle convection that could perhaps explain how these plates on the surface of the Earth were, were moving. But it wasn't until 1963 when scientists were doing ocean floor magnetic surveys and they discovered that there was a kind of magnetic striping parallel to the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. So there were stripes of magnetism, normally and then reversely magnetized ocean floor, in stripes running parallel to the ridge. And the stripes were the same age either side of the ridge. So people then began to think, this is powerful evidence that new ocean floor was being created at the mid-ocean ridge. It was moving away from the ridge. It was recording the polarity of the Earth's magnetic field at the time that ocean crust was formed. And then when the Earth's magnetic field reverses, the next set of ocean floor that's produced at the mid-ocean ridge records the other, the opposite polarity. Okay, so it's reversely magnetized. So we have evidence that these are spreading ridges, that the ocean floor is spreading. So that was 1963. And that was really one of the key observations. Evidence continued to accumulate through the 1960s. Uh, the idea of mantle convection as a driving mechanism, as an engine for plate tectonics was revived. And some other things were also going on. So people began to think about the role of gravity so sure, at the sure. mid-ocean ridges, mm -hmm. these are high elevated, effectively mountain ridges yeah, down yeah. the middle of the ocean. So you have gr the effect of gravity right. causing those ocean plates to separate. We call that ridge push. And then in the trenches where the plates are diving, they're, they're, they're now colder because as that hot rock at the mid-ocean ridges cools, obviously it subsides and eventually becomes dense enough to sink back into the Earth's interior in the trenches, the subduction zones, okay. and gravity there has an effect that it pulls the slab. We have slab pull. So we have mantle convection, we have ridge push, we have slab pull. We now have a mechanism to explain how the plates okay. could have separated. And I think this magnetic striping thing 
is really important, and I want to make sure that I understand what you're talking about. So, <clears throat> so a normal, if you think about a normal volcano, yep. think about your basic uh, high school or not high school, uh, elementary school science fair project where right. you have the vinegar and your baking soda and the, you know, mix them together and it oozes everywhere. And it's sort of trying to illustrate what's happening at a volcano right. where stuff is coming out and oozing mm -hmm. out. Mm -hmm. And so what you're saying is that the mid-ocean ridge is essentially a, a volcano that is a long crack, a linear yeah. crack. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So it's not just oozing everywhere, but it's no. oozing out away from the crack. Yes. Okay. And as it does that, the magnetic poles of the Earth are flipping back and forth. Yes. Which may be surprising to some of our listeners and audience members right. to learn that in fact, yeah, so in the past, the magnetic yeah. poles have flip-flopped. Yeah. yeah. So that's yeah. a little weird. Yeah. So what you end up with is these tiny magnetic <clears throat> minerals mm -hmm. that are present yes. in the magma as it's coming up. Yeah. They are orienting themselves exactly. according to the magnetic poles. Yes. That's right. And then the rock solidifies. Yes. And becomes basalt. Yep. Or basalt. Yep. Depending on where you're from, which side of the Atlantic. Which side you're of the on. Atlantic yes. Ridge you're on. On on this side <laughs> of the Atlantic Ridge it's basalt, and on that side of the Atlantic Ridge it's basalt. Yes. So so then uh, that preserves the orientation it of does. the magnetic field. Yeah. And then there's the flippy floppy thing. Yep. And now the South Pole's at the North Pole and the North yep. Pole's at the South Pole. Yeah. And then you have the same thing. You have the you have more oozing yep. from, you know, your baking soda vinegar volcano is oozing more stuff out. Yep. And now it's orienting the minerals the opposite direction. Yes. And so you what you end up with are these parallel stripes yep. of normally and then reversely right. and then normally again and then reversely right. magnetized ocean floor. And you can match them they geochemically match. Yes. by the radioisotopes yes. in them. Right. And they're symmetrical. So you have symmetrical yes. patterns either side of the ridge. Right. And so, this, was, this yeah. was kind of the crucial thing that sort of clinched it for everyone. It did. And yeah. geology went from being sort of uh, ambivalent, skeptical towards... Yeah. Plate tectonics to, yes, yeah. plate tectonics is correct. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like yeah. overnight. So Not there, quite, were, but so over, the, but so there was this earth science revolution, basically, in yeah. the 60s and the early 70s, where the earth science community went from universally rejecting continental drift to overwhelmingly embracing plate tectonics. Yeah. Because new evidence had come in yep. that, to, to most people's minds, absolutely conclusively demonstrated that these were spreading ridges, that the plates really were moving apart. And that could explain a whole host of geological data. It could explain yeah. the distribution of volcanoes and earthquakes. Yeah. It explained the structure of the ocean floor. Yep. Explain the distribution of mountain belts. Why the continents fit together. Why the continents fit together. All that it, good it explained stuff. all kinds of things. So it was a really successful scientific idea. So as I recall then, Wickham and Morris's book was 1961. Mm -hmm. So uh, the Genesis flood comes out, sparks the creationist revolution, but mm. there's not any plate tectonics in it. There's no. not really anything about plate tectonics. No, it. absolutely. No, this is all, this is entirely before that revolution happened. Okay. Yeah. So what have creationists done then with this idea of plate tectonics? I imagine yeah. some of them are going to say, nah. Because yeah. that's the usual reaction to new scientific ideas. You, we generally are pretty skeptical of them. Yeah, absolutely. So there, there's some pushback against plate tectonics, and sure. some people are very skeptical. And you get some papers published in the creationist literature that's that are really skeptical about it. But it actually turns out, ironically, that plate tectonics was one of the keys to help us really understand how Noah's flood happened. Uh, and to, to understand that, we need to um, sort of think about the work of uh, John Baumgartner. All right. So back in the 1960s, um, scientists had already realized that the rocks of the Earth's mantle, under certain conditions of stress, had this remarkable ability to weaken by orders of magnitude. And okay. obviously, that's a significant observation, right? So if these plates are diving down through the rocks of the Earth's interior, uh, the, the fact that those rocks can weaken so incredibly substantially uh, is perhaps a significant factor. Yeah. 
And John Baumgartner in the 1980s, he was doing his doctoral studies and for his PhD, he developed a supercomputer program that enabled him to model the dynamics of the Earth's interior. And so he was able to show that under certain conditions of stress, a plate which in normal circumstances might be diving through the Earth's interior, as we say, at rates of centimeters per year, right. could actually dive um, under conditions of thermal runaway at rates of maybe meters per second. That's an incredible <laughs> Yeah, meters difference. per second is quite a lot than the rate at which my fingernails grow, yeah. Yeah. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. And the, the way it works is something like this. You, you, you know if you take a rubber ball, let's say you get a, a rubber ball and it's cold. Yeah. And you begin to squeeze it in your hand. It's tough. It's, it's hard to begin with, at, but it begins to warm up, right? It begins to, yeah. to, you can feel the temperature increasing. And as the temperature increases, it feels a bit softer. Yeah. It's easier to squeeze. Yeah. And as it's easier to squeeze, you squeeze it harder and it heats up a bit more. So imagine you have an ocean plate that is diving into the Earth's interior. Mm -hmm. Now that plate has the same composition as the mantle rocks on which it's sitting. But it's colder because as the hot rock moves away from the mid-ocean ridge, it cools down. And as it cools down, it becomes denser. And, it become, and because it's denser than the rocks on which it's sitting, it has a tendency to sink, to sink into those rocks okay. along what we call subduction zones. Got it. As that plate dives into the Earth's interior, it deforms the mantle rocks, okay? It's pushing those mantle rocks out of the way yeah. as it, it finds space, you know, it's accommodated um, right. in, in the Earth's interior. Those mantle rocks are being deformed. It's like squeezing your rubber ball. Yeah. You get frictional heating. So the temperature of those rocks begins to increase. As the temperature increases, the rocks weaken. They get softer. Yeah. They're less viscous. Mm -hmm. And as they get less viscous, the plate dives a bit faster. As it dives a bit faster, it deforms the rocks more. As it deforms the rocks more, there's more heating. Right. As there's more heating, keeps... the rocks weaken. You get this thing called thermal runaway. You get, yeah. It's a positive feedback kind of process. And eventually the plates are diving at rates of meters per second. Now it was this insight that plates could behave in that fashion that led in 1994 to a group of creationists, including John Baumgartner, proposing a model called catastrophic plate tectonics. Ah, so plate tectonics, and now we have catastrophic plate tectonics. So yeah. what is this catastrophic, what is this model? So in catastrophic plate tectonics, the, you, you have this situation just before the flood begins where you have cold, dense, pre-flood ocean floor sitting on top of hot mantle rocks. Okay. Okay, so there's a gravitational instability, right? These, oh. these ocean floor rocks have a tendency to sink because they're cold and they're dense. So what happens at the beginning of the flood in CPT is that that ocean floor begins to catastrophically break away from the margins of the pre-flood continents. It begins to take a dive into the Earth's interior and you have this thermal runaway process where the mantle rocks weaken because of the frictional heating and the plate begins to dive faster and you have this thermal runaway. Okay. As those plates dive and are consumed, if you like, in the Earth's interior, new hot rock is coming up along the mid-ocean ridges, which as we've said, are spreading centers. And that hot rock is replacing the rock as the plates are separating at the mid-ocean ridge. Makes sense. New ocean floor yeah. is being formed. So you get like a... Kind of like a convection. Yeah, like a tread cell. there, like yeah. a tread on a tank. Like a conveyor things. belt, yeah. Yeah, moving so along. The, so the ocean floor is move, moving along. Got it. And as it does that, of course, the continents are being dragged around yes, with it. So this, is, this is how the continents... Making a mess, yeah, yeah. Um, and the other thing is that as that hot rock wells up at the mid-ocean ridge, uh, in contact with the cold ocean water, uh, it vaporizes sure. and you get steam jets that entrain lots of ocean water with them. And so we have a mechanism for loads of water yeah. being propelled into high into the Earth's atmosphere, which would fall as rain. Could it fall maybe 40 days of it, rain? Maybe. Possibly 40 nights as well? Maybe. And of course the Bible also talks about the fountains of the Great yeah. Deep. Yeah, yeah. Sure. And these would be fountains yeah, jets, in the Great yeah. Deep, in, yeah. in, in the ocean depths. And the, the other thing that happens is that because the new hot rock that's replacing the old cold ocean floor is now warmer, it is thermally buoyant. 
So it has a tendency to sit higher than the rockets up. replacing. The whole ocean floor is being So the whole up. of the ocean floor is being raised, in fact, maybe by kilometer or more. So water from the ocean is then being pushed out over the continent. Displaced onto the continent. Huh. And also, of course, with all the active tectonics, uh, you have tsunamis yeah. and things like this that, yeah. that are propelling water onto the continent. So we have a mechanism to flood the Earth. So it turns out that plate tectonics was kind of a key to help us understand what was happening physically at the time of Noah's flood. And the really exciting thing, I think, about CPT is that it explains all of the same kind of data that conventional plate tectonics explains. Mm -hmm. The distribution of volcanoes, sure. and earthquakes, sure. and structure of the ocean floor, and the matching continent, uh, continents, the coastlines. Explains all of that, but it also explains some other things as well. Right. That are not well explained in the conventional model. It explains the depth and the temperature of subducted slabs that we yeah. now yeah. can see using seismic tomography. Right. Explains evidence of rapid magnetic reversals and things like that. Yeah. So. It has the hallmarks of a good scientific model. It has some has some explanatory and predictive power. Imagine that. Imagine <laughs> that. Well, I think we should go on into the park mm. then and check out some of these evidences for ourselves. Yeah. We may have a difficult time given the forest present, but uh, I'm sure we can find something if we look hard enough. Yeah. So let's, let's go check it. it out. Let's do it. We made it to Klingman's Dome. We did. It is chaos up here. <laughs> it's busy. Uh, I think we're going to go find a nice shady spot to uh, record what we wanted to say about that but a very oh, hot day amazing view yeah. yeah yeah all right let's go find a quiet spot i'm just loving this forest and this we've gotten into the shade here yeah. and there's a nice breeze going and it's yeah, almost it's tolerable nice. here today in <laughs> july in tennessee so why don't you give us some basic rundown of what we're going to see here in the park yeah as we <laughs> try at least to go through some of the geology here. Okay. Yeah. So a bit of basic orientation. Uh, the Appalachian Mountains, mm -hmm. of which the Great Smoky Mountains are a part, right. are part of a large mountain chain that actually is continuous with mountains in West Africa, the Atlas Mountains, believe oh, wow. it or not, yeah. and also with the Scottish Highlands oh, my. in Great Britain. Okay. So this was... So we're all Highlanders here. Right. So okay. Th so this was a mountain chain that was built before the Atlantic Ocean opened up. Okay. So we need to think about plate tectonics, right? So right. That's what we're here for, right? Okay. We're here to learn some plate tectonics. So. Okay. So what okay. built these mountains? Okay. That, that's what I want to know. What built these mountains? Yes. So we had uh, a, a situation where Africa what is now the continent of Africa, at, collided with the eastern margin of North America. Okay, got it. And in that That must have been a big collision because yeah. the Appalachians are quite long. Yeah. yeah, and there was a series of collisional events okay. that caused the mountains to be uplifted and the sedimentary rocks that were there already to essentially be deformed, folded, and faulted and metamorphosed to varying degrees okay. because of the heat and pressure that's involved. So they, right. so you get rocks that are deeply buried and they get heated up and they're under tremendous pressure. And that causes these transformations that we call metamorphism. So many of the sedimentary rocks that make up the core of the mountains here are metamorphosed to various degrees, pressure cooked. Pressure like. cooked, pressure got cooked. it. I can understand that. So the story here is, is a dynamic one of uh, converging continents, collision, uplift, folding, faulting, metamorphism. So it's a really active tectonic environment. Wow. And we can't see much evidence of that in, in a sense here because right. you know, we're, we're in the forest. Right. But we're going to look at some sites where we can start to go below the surface and see the rocks. Absolutely. So a question for you then, uh, Todd, because uh, I know you've obviously done a bit of background reading in preparation for this trip. A bit. <laughs> so there are some different tectonic provinces here. We've got mm. the mountains, which are right. very highly deformed. We've got the ridge and valley province yeah. with these linear yep. ridges. Yep. 
And then we've got the Cumberland Plateau, and the Cumberland Plateau are these flat-lying strata. How do they relate then to this te plate tectonic situation that yeah. you know I've just been describing? There? Right. So if you, so the way I like to think about it is you have the crumple zone, right, <laughs> which is the mountains themselves, right. But there's still pressure and stress going beyond just the mountain range yeah. themselves. Okay. And so that causes more faulting. And what's cool about it, we saw that on the map that we looked at. Yes. Uh, that those ridges are just perfectly parallel yeah. to the mountain and they're parallel to each other, right? Right. And so those are basically more cracks that are coming up from the crumple zone, the, right. the, the collision zone where the mountains have formed. And those cracks then provide these uh, areas of weakness yeah. where it's, it gets eroded out. Yeah. Okay. So one of the things I think we're going to talk about is how much strata there was on top of this. Yeah. Because um, these mountains are lower than they once were. Yeah. Uh, because of erosion. And so some of that erosion also took out stuff to the west of here which is yeah. the, the Valley Province. And then you have the Cumberlands, which are relatively flat. It's sort of where the, the, the geology comes back to its senses and gets right. out of the zone right. of stress and cracking and all that stuff. Yeah. Not exactly, there's still cracks there. Yeah. Um, so the Sequatchie Valley, which we pointed out on the map, that's another one of those. The reason the Sequatchie Valley is there is because there's a, there's a big fault running right down the middle of it. Yeah. And so that provided a weak spot for erosion. but. On the, on, on the Cumberlands itself, you don't have that. And so you have this relatively flat strata again. So the farther away you get from the mountains, the less stress there is and the more, the more sensible the geology becomes. Yeah. Layers are in the correct order. They're, they're all nice and relatively flat again. There's a lot of erosion, of course, that changes the landscape a bit. But the, right. the layers of rock themselves are sort of that way. Yeah, yeah. And that, that kind of makes sense. And yeah. the fact that the Ridge and Valley province has that tectonic trend that matches the mountains oh yeah tells it's you there's clearly a, a there's related a common origin so yeah, yeah there's, there's yeah. yeah so what we're going to do here in the park so we finally so we drove into the park and we've got up here to uh, Klingman's Dome and I assure you viewers and <laughs> listeners this is Klingman's Dome I know I know this forest doesn't look like Klingman's Dome but we've got some footage from the dome itself. We're here on a terribly busy day, so yeah. we had to sneak off to do our recording. But anyway, um, we're going to go down and we're going to yeah. basically walk our way up the geologic Through column. The geology. That's the idea. So we're going to start with what you mentioned, the crystalline rocks. Yeah, the crystalline basement rocks. And then we're going to look at some some of the sandstones in the park. Yeah. And then we're going to end with some of the limestones. Yeah. Uh, and it's going to tell a really interesting story as we learn more about plate tectonics. Yeah. Here we are in the Great Smoky Mountains. Yeah. We've come out of the forest yeah. on the side of a busy road here. This is, this is 441. Yeah. Uh, we're gonna try not to get hit. This is the this is the perennial problem of the geologist, right? Yeah, you're, right. you're always dodging traffic. Yeah. Um, and we've come to a road cut that we are told is what you you call crystalline basement rock. Yes. Right. So we've had a little look at it. Yes. We're not sure. Well, the guide tells us that this is a metamorphic rock called gneiss. Okay, that's not nice N-I-C-E. This no. is nice G-N-E-I-S-S. -S. Got it. Okay. So not the list that Sandy makes. No. This is, this is something <laughs> right. else entirely. Something else entirely. And we've been across and had a look at the outcrop. And it is so degraded. It's so weathered. It's so covered in lichen and moss. And poison, and poison ivy. ivy. Yeah, poison <laughs> ivy. We don't, we don't, we, we don't, don't really want to get no. too close to inspect it. So it's very difficult to make out exactly what it is and to persuade ourselves that the guidebook is correct. Um, we couldn't even find a nice sort of fresh fracture where right. we could see a fresh face. Yeah. Um, it's also weathered. Um, 
but the guidebook tells us it's nice. So I think we have to take their word for it. Yeah, I don't. I don't have any uh, reason have to any doubt reason not to. the geologists yeah. looking at this and identifying yeah. it as nice. And the guidebook so. was probably written when it was a bit fresher and yeah, you know, most people, likely. Yeah, yeah, and you could you could you could see it more clearly. So so what is nice? Okay, what what, what are we talking about here? And, okay, and how is it a crystalline basement rock? What right. does that even mean? So the crystalline basement rocks are the oldest rocks in the national park here. Uh, and they form the basement on which all of the other rocks sit. Okay, so they, they are the basement. And okay. they are crystalline rocks, they, so, and they're metamorphic rocks. So gneisses and schists. So these are rocks which began as something else, maybe sedimentary rocks or igneous rocks, that have been pressure cooked. They've been subjected to extremes of temperature and pressure and that has caused changes in the texture of those rocks changes in the minerals that form sometimes new minerals form within those rocks so they're pressure cooked rocks and there are different types uh, gneisses for example are often uh, layered rocks banded rocks look a, they look a bit like marble cake if you know what marble cake looks like yeah uh, where the light minerals and the dark minerals have separated out into dark and light bands and these rocks are very ancient. Uh, as we say, they, they form the basement on which everything else sits. And so we think that these are probably creation week rocks, rocks that form. Let me just let the motorcycles go by. <laughs> we think these are what? So we think these are creation week rocks. Okay. Okay, so they probably form the cause of the continents that got uplifted on the third day of creation wow. week when he, you know, the continents were lifted out of that prim primordial ocean and uh, the cores of those those continents were these crystalline okay. rocks. All uh, right. So so that's what we're looking at here, creation week rocks, which is amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. I mean, to think that this is, this is a piece of what God made yeah. on that third day, yeah. that's remarkable. Now, the fact that we can see this rock, yeah. it is no longer... Yeah. At the crystalline basement, something happened here right. that has to do with plate tectonics. Yeah. And we're going to get into that more and more yeah. as we go through the park to explain exactly yeah. how we can possibly see the core yeah. of a continental piece on the side of a busy highway here yeah. as we are standing in Great Smoky Mountains <laughs> National Park. Yeah. All right. Well, That's let's journey up. on and find some more rocks. Yeah. Somewhere. They've got to be here, right? <laughs> so while we're still here in the Econolofty Valley, mm -hmm. um, we just we just saw the road cut. We've moved off the road so we don't get hit by anything. <laughs> uh, but we thought we'd come over here to this lovely river and stream near Mingus Mill and talk about uh, a feature that is not actually the rock itself. Yeah but it's related to the cracks in the rock. And it's an important part of the geological story here in the Great Smokies. So why don't you tell us a little more about the cracks? Okay. So the cracks that Todd is referring to there are what geologists call faults. And the reason the Oconolofty Valley is here is because there's a fault that runs the length of the valley. We can't see the fault because it's hidden below the valley floor. Okay. Uh, but the fault is basically a zone of weakness that erosion has exploited. And that's why the valley's here, it's why the river is here, and then the streams feeding into the river. Because there was a fracture zone that has then been picked out by erosion to form this valley. So I guess we should say something about faults more yeah. generally, what faults are. Uh, faults, as I said, are a fracture or a zone of fractures between two blocks of rock and faults can vary enormously in size. Uh, you get movement along the, the fracture zone, so the blocks move relative to one another, and the movement can be a matter of millimeters, or it could be thousands of miles. Miles? So, <laughs> miles, thousands yeah. of miles? Yeah. So there's That's a... Quite a fracture. Yeah, so a big range of scales, yeah. basically, that yeah. we're, we're dealing with when we're talking about faults. There are different types of faults. Uh, there are what we call strike-slip or transform faults. Uh, those are faults like the San Andreas Fault in California, 
where in effect the two blocks slide past one another. And then there are things called normal faults. And normal faults form in response to extension. So when the crust is pulled apart, when those blocks are pulled apart from one another, one side above the fault line drops down relative to the other. And we call that a normal fault. And then there are things called reverse faults, where the block above the fault line actually moves up and over the, the, the other block. And that forms in, a, in response to compression. So when you have two blocks of rock that are being compressed, pushed towards one another, one block will ride up over top of the other block. And there's a particular type of reverse fault, which we're actually going to see later. Yeah. Uh, and we don't want to... No, we don't want to spoil We don't want to spoil yet. things, no, but no. we're going to come on to that. And so you need to know about reverse faults because we're going to look at one particular type of reverse fault and see an example of it later. Yeah. And this then, the faulting, mm -hmm. <laughs> this takes a lot of force to crack that much rock, right? So we're right. talking about tectonics here. And that's yeah. going to be a major part of the story here in the Smokies yeah. is tectonics and the kinds of forces that yeah. pushed up these mountains and made these massive cracks yeah. and, and faults that run through yeah. the park. Tectonic forces that are able to push crustal blocks towards one another or pull them apart. And of course, the movement along those faults is what results in earthquakes, right? So right. strain builds up and then suddenly the, the crustal blocks will shift and it will create an earthquake. And uh, that's why you have the earthquakes, you know, in California right. associated with the San Andreas Fault. Or even here. We, or we, here. Get, we get occasional right. earthquakes. We did have one a couple of years ago that uh, knocked, uh, knocked a cup off my, my nightstand. It was right. pretty traumatic, <laughs> I tell you. It woke me up. Yeah. What was that? Yeah. yeah. So, so tremendous exciting. tectonic forces at work. And that's what we're going to see evidence of here in the park. Well, all right, we've we found some geology again. Um, just, a, just a little bit here and there, not too much. We don't want to get carried away here in the Great Smokies, but uh, uh, yeah, so we're on, uh, we're on Route 441. Uh, we're on the Tennessee side of the, of the park, and we are looking at a fairly sizable road cut here. And Paul, can you tell me, what is this rock? It's a rock, obviously. <laughs> it is. Uh, this is the Thunderhead Sandstone. So what we're looking at here are the rocks that make up the main mass of the mountains here in the Great Smokies. And we call those the Okoe Supergroup. And there are various subdivisions. One of the subdivisions is called the Great Smoky Group. Surprise, surprise. Good, good name, Great Smoky <laughs> Group, yeah. And one of the rock units that's part of the Great Smoky Group is the Thunderhead Sandstone. And that's what this road cut is. Uh, so we have a thick bedded sandstone. It's this kind of gray color. It's dipping roughly to the south, southeast. Okay. Uh, the beds vary in thickness from a few feet up to about 25 feet thick. And the Okoe supergroup is really thick. So in all, I think there are at least 50,000 feet of Okoe supergroup sediments. All right, so we've talked a little bit about the Thunderhead Sandstone, and we have a nice close-up here. So why don't you take me through this? Walk me through what I'm seeing, because basically what I see is a big <laughs> grainy rock. So uh, help me out. What am I looking at? So we're looking at this sort of medium to darkish gray sandstone. All right. It's very coarse. That's one thing that you immediately notice. In fact, it's pebbly in places. Yeah. Uh, you can see the quartz clasps the quartz, the quartz pebbles. Yeah, it doesn't look like much of a sandstone. Right. I mean, as far as I know, sandstones is yeah. nice tan, fine-grained things. Yeah, yeah, yeah this that's is not, not fine-grained. No, no, this is coarse. And it's very thickly bedded, so there's not much okay. bedding when, when you look around at this Thunderhead sandstone. The beds are quite thick, okay. sometimes 25 feet thick. Okay. And they're graded beds, so sometimes what you find is the kind of pebbly base to the bed, and then it finds as you go upwards. Oh my goodness, you can see that here. So that's evidence of a waning current, right? So you okay. have, you have um, a current that comes in, and of course, at first it's moving fast. It can transport the larger clasts, the larger grains. Okay. 
uh, but they fall out of suspension first, right? So they, they come out, they're deposited. And then as the current energy wanes, gradually the finer and finer particles deposited. So you end up with a graded bed, coarser at the bottom, fining upwards. Excellent. Uh, and so that's the Thunderhead sandstone. Okay. Okay, now one question here, you gotta help me out. <laughs> this thing is not sandstone. No, that's clearly something else. What, what are we looking at there? Okay, so there's a fracture in the rock right there, and okay. it's been infilled okay. with a mineral vein. Oh, nice. So, so that's like a quartz or something. It's quartz or calcite or something like that. Okay. Um, and yeah, so there's this big mineral vein running down through the In rock. a crack. And the crack where a fracture has opened up and its minerals have been precipitated. Cool. And that happened after the rock was already rock. It's a post-depositional feature, yeah. Post-depositional feature. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Yeah. So... So this rock, Upper Proterozoic, we're talking about <laughs> kind of on the edge, right? We don't know exactly, is it very early stage of flood or is it pre-flood? I imagine some of the Okoe supergroup is probably pre-flood. So we saw down uh, at the visitor center, we saw the crystalline basement rock. Mm -hmm. And I can imagine God makes crystalline basement rock, but this looks like it has a history. It looks like it has an erosional history and a depositional history, like it actually was formed as a, like a depositional unit. Like, you know, it, it has a real history. So how does that happen? How do you make sedimentary rock without a flood before the flood even happens? Right. Well, there are a couple of scenarios, I think, you know, we, we can think about. So one is the events of creation week itself. So on day three, when God uplifts the continents, that crystalline basement rock forming the core of those continents, there would have been an enormous amount of erosion, right? So as the waters drained off those rising continents, it would have eroded material, material would have been shed from those continents and had the potential to be deposited in the ocean as thick sequences of sediment, perhaps containing few fossils, if any fossils. And, and then there's another period of Earth history, which is a period between creation week and the flood, when there could have been sedimentation in marine environments before the flood, right? So there, there could have been shallow marine uh, basins, uh, shallow marine shelves where sediments were being deposited in that period between creation week and the flood. Where exactly the boundary falls in these rocks, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that anybody has really done the work to sort of figure out exactly what's creation week, what's pre-flood, exactly where does the flood begin. Uh, but this is roughly where, where these rocks fall. These are, these are latest Proterozoic. So they're somewhere around that sort of creation week, pre-flood, and just the beginning of the flood, perhaps. So. And when you say people haven't done that work, we're talking about here in East Tennessee, yeah. not, not generally speaking. Yeah, that's right. So creationists have proposed some criteria, things that we could look for to try and identify where the pre-flood transitions to the flood. We'd expect a big fossil discontinuity, right? So we'd expect an, a dramatic increase in the abundance and diversity of fossils at the beginning of the flood. We'd expect some kind of tectonic discontinuity because this was a big tectonic event yeah. associated with enormous earthquakes and so on. Uh, we'd, we'd expect some kind of erosional discontinuity as the floodwaters begin to transgress onto the, onto the pre-flood continents. So there are some things that we can look for and that creationists have applied those criteria in some other places like Grand Canyon and the Mojave Desert, but I'm not sure that anybody's applied those criteria here in the Great Smokies. So some of what we're saying is necessarily a bit speculative because yeah. somebody needs to do that work and figure out exactly where these different groups of rocks fall in that creationist earth history. Well, we've, we've made it to Cades Cove. This is this vast flat plain here in the middle of the mountains, surrounded by mountains on all sides. This is Cades Cove. There is a loop road around here. We are on the very edge of the loop road right now. It is a good 11 mile trip one way. Um, very popular place in the park. If you want to see it, you better get here early.
yeah. uh, or you'll be sitting in traffic for hours. <laughs> <laughs> and once you're in that loop, right? yeah, you can't get out. There's out. well, there's some pretty nasty <laughs> access roads that you can take on the gravel, but uh, that go right through the mountains. But I don't recommend it, right? <laughs> um, unless you're adventuresome like me, then then do it. Uh, yeah, so big flat area, big area for farms and um, settlers in yeah. the early American period as the Americans expanded west. And yeah, it's ringed by mountains. So what's going on here? I mean, we've talked about the mountains. We've talked about the folding. We've talked about the tectonics. So what's happening here? Yeah. that we end up with a flat plain in the middle of the mountains. Yeah, it's very strange. So you've got this enormous flat-bottomed valley, basically, right. ringed by these, these mountains. And underneath our feet, uh, we've got rocks which are limestones. Those are rocks of the Knox group. Okay. Uh, those are Ordovician limestones. So okay. if you think about your geological column, uh, that's right after the Cambrian. Mm -hmm. uh, and that makes them Paleozoic yep. rocks. Yep. Um, and they form the bottom of this flat area right. here. And then around the margins, uh, we have uh, the mountains, which are made of the Precambrian rocks that we've already encountered, I think, elsewhere. Uh, these are the Okoe supergroup. And those are Proterozoic rocks. That's a subdivision of the Precambrian. So those are older rocks. And then the floor of the valley are these younger rocks, these limestones of, of the Ordovician. And if you know your geological column, that's very peculiar, right? So that's Yeah, I was going to say, that's, that's backwards, right? Yeah. So yeah. I would expect the mountains to be made of the later rock yeah. and the crystalline rock. You yeah. get down to the bottom of the yeah. Grand Canyon, for example, you come to the basement you come to the older rocks. rocks. You come to the oldest yeah. rocks. Yeah, and, and here, here it's the older backwards. The rocks are at the higher elevation. Yeah. You go the up to the mountains. The lower elevation. So what's going on? Well, the answer is that we have a, a big fault that runs right around this cove. So right okay. around the margins of this cove is a fault called the Great Smoky Fault. Okay. And uh, it's a particular kind of fault called a thrust fault. And in order to explain why this thrust fault helps us to understand why you've got these older rocks above the younger rocks, uh, I want to take you to a place where we can actually see the Great smoky fault exposed, one of the few locations in the park where we can see it. And we can wow. actually see the older rocks sat above the younger rocks. All right. And I'll explain a bit more about thrust faulting there and explain what it all means. What it all means. Yeah. All right, that sounds good. Let's take a hike then. All right, Paul. <laughs> you, you, we, we hiked all the way down here. That wasn't too bad. That was about an hour and 45 minutes from the road. Yeah. Very hot. We we yeah we did this humid. recorded this in July and it's it's yeah. very humid. Yeah, it's humid and it's quite sticky. So I'm a bit wet yeah. here. It's kind of gross, but we'll we'll get on with that. So what am I looking at? This is a this is not much. I've you know you you right. used to see creationists are used to see in the Grand Canyon yeah. um, exposures. This is like a postage stamp compared to that. <laughs> so what are we looking at here? Yeah, it's, it's quite difficult to make it out, isn't it, from here, particularly because it's quite overgrown. And uh, we should say we can't get as close as we maybe would want to to the outcrop because we know that in the cave over there, there are bats right. roosting. Bat napping. Uh, and so, you know, we, we're obeying the signs not to get close to the bats. Correct. Uh, <laughs> but what you can basically see here are um, this series of quite dark coloured rocks and then below it there are these lighter coloured rocks and there seems to be a junction there between those two sets of rocks right i can see i can sort of see that you i mean the, the the branches and the leaves are kind of covering yeah. up uh the lower stuff but i can definitely see down below there's a lot lighter colour rock than above yeah despite the moss and yeah. <laughs> everything else that's covering it up but anyway so, so the, what are those then? So the rocks down at the bottom, the lighter coloured rocks, are um, carbonates. They're limestones. Okay. Uh, they're actually Paleozoic limestones, Ordovician, uh, I think. Knox uh, group. Knox um, group, yeah. Knox group mm -hmm. uh, limestones. And then above those, we've got these darker rocks, which are Proterozoic rocks. They're Precambrian rocks okay. above. Which is what most of the park is. We've already sort yes. of talked about that. 
most of the park is this Proterozoic stuff, which is exactly Precambrian. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So most of the mass of the mountains is that darker stuff above. They're, Got it. They're those uh, plastic rocks, they're sandstones predominantly, uh, and they, they're this kind of dark, sort of medium to dark gray sort of color. Okay, so I already asked you this in Gates Gove, right? If we talked about, we talked about how, you know, this, this, this principle of superposition, you have the, 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 the lower rocks are deposited first, yeah. the younger rocks are deposited on top of them. Right. That's the principle of superposition. Yeah. But here you're telling me that that is Ordovician and that is Precambrian. And I don't know much about geology, but I know that's backwards. Right. Those are upside <laughs> down. So exactly. how, are, how are we explaining that? I, and you've already yeah. sort of mentioned, we've kind of mentioned it, but. Yeah. So we've got a very unusual situation here in that we have these younger rocks below these older rocks. And as you say, that's the wrong way around. Right, that right? is. <laughs> you, you, your geologists work from the bottom up. They're the oldest rocks at the bottom, uh, the younger rocks at the top. There you go. Here, it's the other way around. Okay. So why is that? Well, we're in a mountain belt, right? Okay. And mountain belts are places where you have uh, plates that are converging mm -hmm. and colliding. And what that does is that causes shortening of the crust. And the way that the crust is shortened when plates collide is through folding and faulting. So the mountains are intensely folded, and in this place, uh, we see some quite incredible faulting. This is what's called a thrust fault, where older rocks have been pushed over top of these younger rocks. So we talked earlier about faulting, and we talked about different types of faults. Yep. We talked about normal faults, yep. where uh, the block above the fault plane drops down, and then you have reverse faults, where the block above the fault plane gets pushed up and over top of the other rocks. And this is a thrust fault, which is a kind of reverse fault, a reverse fault that has a low angle it's called a thrust fault. Okay, so it's 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 going up enough at a low angle that it's actually scraping over over younger, the top of over younger stuff. rocks. Yeah, okay. And some of these thrust faults can be, uh, you know, can can be very very extensive. So thrust faults can be hundreds of miles. Oh my um, goodness! In, in terms of you know the amount of movement. Well, so, I mean, it must be that here because yeah. there's it's it's miles of yeah of of um this this younger rock that exposures that you could see throughout this area both in the park and outside the park yeah and if you think about the kind of compressional forces that are required oh yeah <laughs> to push that enormous block of rock over top of these younger rocks it, it just staggers the mind I yeah think. yeah the, ki the kind of tectonic energies and forces that are involved in producing a thrust fault like this. And I, I think it has to be catastrophic. It has to be rapid because you have to overcome friction at yeah. the fault plane. Mm -hmm. And to do that, you need to essentially jack up the, the rocks above with um, fluid pressure at the, at the fault surface. And those fluid pressures are easily dissipated. And so, uh, you know, you, these movements have to be sudden. They have to be quick. And it's smooth, too. It's smooth. I mean, yeah. I would expect if it took, you know, a long period of time, there would be a lot of time for erosion and cracking and all that other good stuff. And it's yeah. this... this you'd, you'd expect a lot more disruption maybe at the yeah, surface. Yeah, maybe at the surface. Yeah, but it's quite impressively smooth over yeah. there. Yeah. At least as far as we can see as in this whatever can, yeah. 50 foot section that's maybe exposed here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, okay. So this is a lot to take in. Let's see if we can recap what we've talked about here. So, okay. So plate tectonics um, is this notion, and most people know it as continental drift. And we've said yeah. that's, <laughs> that's a little bit... Um, too slow for us, right? Well, uh, continental sprint. Continental, yeah, it's more like a sprint. <laughs> uh, it's very fast, yeah. and we and it's important 
Because the world we live in now, this is what I've told my students for years, the world we live in now cannot be flooded globally. Right. There's not enough water. Right. Right. The only way you could do it is if you lower the really high mountains and you raise up the bottom of the ocean so that yeah. the, the, the deep ocean trenches are not so deep mm -hmm. so that you don't have to have that much volume of water. So mm -hmm. the only way to get that is if you have a tectonic planet where yep. there was a time where there weren't so many mountains and there wasn't. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So, and then we said that, oh goodness, we said there was a lot, and most of these mountains are Precambrian. Yeah. So this That's is right. why we don't have any dinosaurs over here. Right. Yeah, <laughs> because they, there aren't these, any. These Precambrian rocks are mostly unfossiliferous. I, you know, right. No, you won't. There are no fossils. You won't find any fossils. Right. It's not very interesting in terms of paleontology. This, even if you could get to the rock underneath of all the plants here, yeah. there's not much to see. Yeah. So, and a lot of this then is is pre-flood rock. It was rock that was there yeah. when the flood started. Yeah, so we've, we've looked at several different types of rocks here. So we've thought about the basement complex, which mm -hmm. are these crystalline rocks. They're mostly sort of high-grade metamorphic rocks like gneisses and schists. Uh -huh. And they probably are creation wheat rocks. They're probably the cause of the created continents that were uplifted okay. you know, from above the waters during the creation wheat. And then we've got this very thick sequence of unfossiliferous sedimentary rocks, uh, which are also Precambrian. And uh, they could well be related to the uplift of the continents, where lots of deposition is happening. As those continents are uplifted on the third day, a shedding material sure. and depositing it um, in these very thick bedded sandstone units without fossils. And very thick bedded. Very, uh, very <laughs> thick bedded. And the whole sequence is, I think, about 50,000 feet. So uh, at least that much, yeah. So it's, uh, it's very large. Yeah. Very, very great thickness of sediments. Uh, and then we've got the younger uh, sediments, which you find outside of the park. But you also have these little tectonic windows like we've got here where you can actually see through the, the Precambrian rocks to these limestones, these younger limestones mm -hmm. underneath. Mm -hmm. And it's a bit counterintuitive that the younger rocks are underneath it is, and being yes. exposed in these windows. But it's because of these enormous thrust sheets uh, that are shortening the crust as the continents collided and cause these enormous blocks of rock to sort of ride over one another during the process of the building of these mountains. It's just mind-boggling. Yeah. It's just mind-boggling. And then you have to have erosion to expose. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, presumably there was also at one time Paleozoic rock on top of the mountains here when they began thrusting, I would think. And right. it got eroded down. So we got these nice rounded yes. mountains here. Yes, yeah. so this is, an, this is a, an older mountain chain. Compared older. to, yeah, older, <laughs> yeah. relatively speaking, compared to, say, the Alps, you know, in Europe, mm -hmm. which are a relatively young mountain chain, or the Himalayas. Uh, these are older mountains, uh, and they've been subjected to a, an enormous amount of erosion, so they're much lower in elevation now than they probably were at the time when they were originally uh, produced by this catastrophic tectonics. Wow. Wow. Mind-boggling. And now we have this park, mm -hmm. and it's quite beautiful. It is. It's lovely. And I think, well, I think we'll sit here and sit a spell, as we say around here, yeah. and uh, enjoy the waterfall and the yeah. sound of the water and uh, the cool air coming out of that cave down there. And then we'll hike back out and wrap everything up. All right? Yep. Sounds good. Sounds good. So that was a great trip. We're headed on the way home now. Uh, beautiful, beautiful mountains, beautiful park. Yeah. Uh, we recommend if you have the time to come see it, you should definitely come see it because it's well worthwhile. And now you know more about the story of plate tectonics so you can appreciate a little bit better yeah. uh, the, the evidence that we see there, uh, the mountains and what they mean for uh, the creation model. Yeah. And as we think about the, the enormous energy and power that raised these mountains, uh, it reminds us as well of how much God hates sin because it's a reminder of the flood. It's a reminder of God's judgment on human sin. It's a reminder that even in this incredible beauty that we see around us in the mountains, we're looking at the wreckage 
of a world that was destroyed because yeah. of human sin. That's right. And uh, it should bring to mind our own uh, sinfulness, our own need of repentance, and uh, a sense of gratitude for God's mercy. Uh, the, the fact that he's forgiven us for our sin in Jesus Christ and that allows us to escape the judgment that's still to come, come that yeah. the flood points to yeah yeah and it's and it's a rem- you, you, you mentioned that and it's just a beautiful picture of redemption too God can you know there, there's no sin too great no sin too ancient no wrongs too deep that God can't redeem them right yeah and and, and bring us back to him yeah um and make everything beautiful uh, in its time again. It's, it's beautiful. So, hey, thanks everybody for joining us. Uh, we will see you next time. Go to Great Smoky Mountains National Park and check it out. It's beautiful. You should totally do that. We'll see, see you then. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Creation. For more information, visit us at letstalkcreation.org where you'll find an archive of past episodes in all our show notes. If you'd like to leave a comment or make a suggestion, you can find us on all the major social media platforms. Let's Talk Creation is brought to you in the U.S. by Core Academy of Science and in the U.K. by Biblical Creation Trust. As a listener-supported ministry, we are grateful for all of your financial support. Find out how you can make a contribution at our website, letstalkcreation.org. Also remember to like, subscribe, and share this episode with your friends. Thanks, and see you next time.